0: Right. Are we on? We're not on. Right. This is not part of you. This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Okay. All right. <laughs> Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Uh,
1: seats are we running? It's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague Tony Prescott. And we're here in the room with David Reddish. And David, you presented us um, your research on what you call the cognitive rat. So what were you having in mind there with a the cognitive rat?
0: Well, the idea is that if we can actually define cognitive functions carefully, mm-hmm. then we can actually go in and we can look at whether animals also perform those cognitive functions. hmm um, particularly neurophysiologically. So if we look at the information processing that you need within cognition, then you can actually f- find those. Mm-hmm. And we found, I think, several examples of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you mean that uh, rats have knowledge in some uh, tangible, describable way?
0: Yes. Yeah. Rats definitely have knowledge about tasks that they have to do, about the, the lives that they have.
1: Can we, can we define cognition here in a bit more specifically? So what, how would you define cognition? Um,
0: I the definition that I've been using, and I, I like to run with this and kind of see how far it will go, is the idea that there is covert knowledge, knowledge about things that are not immediately uh, available to mm-hmm. the animal, to you. So if you, for example, think about something, you will mentally time travel. You will imagine yourself into a future. So one of the things we've been able to show, for example, is that rats can mentally time travel. They can imagine other places and other times. Mm-hmm. For
1: example. But now you emphasized in the in the in the introduction to your talk quite a bit on the one that it's it's historical antecedents, like in Tolman and, and Hull. And also you spent quite some time already explaining, let's say, the different the decoding methods that you have developed to actually make sense of the the neural response so so what is this historical context in which you're doing this
0: well historically of course there's been a big question of whether or not animals can think right and whether they have they are more than just stimulus response creatures and that of course this was a big fight throughout much of psychology for many many years and um At this point, I think, of course, lots of people, not just us, have kind of come to the conclusion that there are, in fact, cognitive information within that. And we've come to that in large part because there are these information consequences that we can see Mm -hmm. historically. You know, I mean, that's where my understanding of the history comes. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. But then, so... The decoding methods you use to to actually interpret these cellular responses that you find, in, in particular, you have looked at the hippocampus, but you also talked about other structures in in the brain of the rat. Um, why do you put so much emphasis on the methods you use to decode these responses? Well, I think the
0: key is to really understand. So, so to me, the the key to the decoding story is that we are in some sense reading the mind, and I think that's the the key here is that. If we really believe, as I think the evidence is now very, very solid, that the mind is the brain, and that, in fact, it is a, the brain is a physical instantiation which generates this psychological construct we call the mind, then we should be able to access the mind by looking at the physical properties of brain, and particularly in this case that neurons communicate by sending these action potentials, these spikes, and we can listen to those spikes, and then we could ask, can we, in fact find what those spikes represent. So the idea of the decoding is that we really have to at some level, once we understand that information, we understand how it's encoded, then we can decode it. Mm-hmm. And at some level the argument is we have to believe that decoding mm-hmm. even when it tells us that the rat is actually thinking about some other place.
2: So you put quite a lot of emphasis on uh, representations or you know knowledge in, in the rat mind of things which are not uh, Present at the current moment, right? Clearly, because you want to distinguish between uh, thinking about things and experiencing them in a direct way, right? Um, is is that is that where you we're going out in terms of cognition? Do you do you link it to memory, or or do you go uh, more towards reasoning, being able to reason and think about uh, these things that are in your memory?
0: Well, I think it's both. So one thing I don't want to Dismiss perception. Perception is an extremely complex question, and there's a lot of very, very interesting questions about how perception works, which ends up being much more complicated. Like, as I like to say, we don't perceive colors, we perceive objects, right? So how do you construct those objects? It's a whole interesting question there. But most of the cognitive question has been... I mean, everybody understands that animals can perceive objects. We know because they can manipulate them. The question is does the animal actually use information beyond what's immediately available to it? And uh, yes, the evidence is very solid now that it does, but to me, that's the cognitive question. So it's both a memory and a decision. In some sense, memory is decision, right? The only reason we remember things is to make better decisions in the future. I mean, otherwise, what's the evolutionary point of memory?
1: Well, but that, that's, of course, only when you want to use the notion of decision in a very broad sense. Yes. So, so.
0: I want to be very careful about mm. the term decision. I'm going to define a decision as any time the animal takes an action. Then that's going to be a decision. So also this would be, let's say, a reflex-driven action? Yes. A reflex is a decision. And I emphasize that because the question then is less... The question then is not... What is, you know, how do you make a deliberative choice? That becomes a special kind of decision. But it becomes a, what is the information processing happening when an animal does a Mm -hmm. reflex? A reflex actually is a decision because if you're measuring, for example, how hot your hand is relative to a stove, you put your hand on a cold stove, you don't have a reflex. Mm -hmm. Put your hand on a very hot stove, you have a reflex of pulling your hand away. At some point, there's a threshold. Mm -hmm. This reflex system has made a decision. Now, the question becomes, what is the mechanism by which the reflex has learned that decision? It's learned it over evolutionary time. And what is the mechanism by which the reflex has made that decision? And it's much simpler than deliberating between which job you're going to take, mm-hmm. right? But they're both un- fundamentally, in the end, taking an action. But then how many
1: levels of decisions do you distinguish in the, in the rat?
0: Well, I think that the way to think about it is not so much in terms of levels as processes. Mm -hmm. And as I see it, there are four information processing sequences that are very identifiably different in the mammalian brain. And those four systems tend to track. There's reflexes. There's deliberation, which is actually an imagination of the future. There's procedural learning, which is basically learning to do a procedure. like I like to use the example of hitting a baseball or... Um, you know, catching a football or something like that. I guess in in Europe, it has to be not catching it, but Mm -hmm. hitting it with your foot. Mm -hmm. right, you got it. Um, And then there's this fourth system, which ends up being, uh, I call Pavlovian, I'm not sure that's the right word for it, but it's a species-specific behavior you learn to release. And Mm -hmm. I call it Pavlovian, because this is what Pavlov's dogs were doing, Mm -hmm. right? They... There was, you salivate in response to food, and they learn that when the bell comes, there's food coming, so they salivate. Mm-hmm. So that's, turns out those four systems end up being all of the fundamental information processing to take an action.
1: Okay, so you're saying then there, and each of these systems will have then their own quality of decision making. Yes. But now for decision And their own neural structure.
0: Sorry? And their own neural structures. You,
1: overlapping or uniquely defined? Mostly separate, okay. Uh,
0: not hundred percent separate, mm-hmm. definitely. But uh, they each have primary systems
1: that are clearly quite different mm-hmm. from each other. Right. But then to, to push it on the decision making definition, um, also because you like to be clear about the definitions, right? Um, you, if I take something like a scratch reflex, right, mm-hmm. or if I take like an eye blink reflex. Mm-hmm. In a, a decision would would, in, would imply that there is a sense of having options and that you select among options. But now, if you talk about the scratch reflex on the frog, which has been shown to be implemented in the spinal cord, mm-hmm. once you generate that stimulus on the skin of the frog, there's just nothing else it can do but just scratch on that spot. So th- there are no options involved. Well, but in
0: fact, there are options involved okay. because the amount of stimulus... Changes So if you have very little stimulus, you basically don't actually touch the frog, the frog won't scratch. You poke it very sharp, the frog will scratch. There's some level in there where it will switch. Mm -hmm. Now I agree, reflexes, there's not a lot of these variability. It's not like deliberation where you're making from many, many choices. One of the examples I like to talk about is uh, the famous scene in Lawrence of Arabia where T.E. Lawrence is showing off how cool he is and how tough he is by holding a match and letting it burn to his fingers mm-hmm. and not executing the reflex. And so I like to give this example because what this actually is in my view is a conflict between two decision-making systems. Mm-hmm. A reflex system that wants to shake the match out before it burns to his fingers and a deliberative system that wants to stop and say no don't do that because mm-hmm. I want to show how cool I am. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have this I mean, a lot of people talk about it as kind of a top-down control, and I think it makes more sense to think of it as conflict.
1: Mm-hmm. But still a conflict that must be resolved yes. one way
0: or the other. that's right. right okay. and in fact, one of the very interesting open questions is how are those conflicts resolved? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And that's something that is not actually mm-hmm. really well known right now.
2: So in the, in the history of psychology, the, this uh, idea that the rat is capable of cognition, of course, goes back a long way, and and, and the work you referenced, you talked about Tolman, but his better known experiments on, for instance, uh, the cognitive map, the ability to take shortcuts, and so on. Uh, But you're wanting to go beyond uh, that ability to to say that the rat has more cognitive powers that are perhaps closer to things which you think of or have thought of as uniquely human. Actually, one of the really
0: interesting things about Tolman's original cognitive map is that it's much more cognitive than map. (laughs) It actually got translated and really thought of in terms of space, because, of course, they were running rats on mazes. And, of course, once they had the discovery of place cells in the 1970s, that kind of suggested, and and, John O'Keefe and Lynn Nadell's suggestion, that the hippocampus was the seat of this cognitive map, really started to talk about it as a spatial paradigm. But the original Tolman concept was much more a structure of the world and that the, um, the cognitive map was an understanding of the structure of the world with which in, you could essentially imagine yourself. And so uh, it actually ended up being, as I like to say, much more cognitive than map.
2: But what has tended to happen in the comparative literature as I know it is people have said, okay, rats are great at spatial cognition, but that's where it stops. Right. Would would you like to go beyond that? Definitely. Uh,
0: one of the things is that I think that the reason that rats are great at spatial cognition is it's much easier to construct a spatial task that rats understand, and I think it's very hard to construct non spatial tasks that rats actually uh, understand. Um, primates really like pushing levers for buttons, right? That's kind of the the you know the ultimate primate machine, right? Is a soda machine. Right. You, put, you do something, you put some money, and food comes out. Mm-hmm. Right. Rats don't track that as well. Um, but if you take these very cognitive things and translate them into a spatial place, not so much because of the space, but even just moving them to different locations, the rats can do very cognitive events. So we've, for example, done a uh, task in which animal rats have to balance delay against food reward. How much food are you going to get? And what we did is we actually made the animals run to two different locations. And then we changed the delays in this complex contingency based on their choices. And they can do that. They understand that contingency. And their behavior proves that they understand that contingency. And it was very hard to do until we moved them to a spatial location. It's not, the space that, it's not that they're doing the con- cognition in space. It's that the space just becomes easier to train them to do that task.
2: But you might argue that spatial cognition is where the system evolved and then it became more flexible uh, perhaps in, in in the evolutionary path leading to humans so that we can now use these skills but in a much more domain-independent way. Possibly.
0: I'm not sure. I, The data as I see it doesn't seem to suggest that. Um, but I'm trying to think if I can think of any good data offhand that's going to do that. Well, we know, for example, that rats see these same kind of cognitive effects across time. So you can, in the same way that these, so there are these cells in the hippocampus, which you both know about, which are called place cells, which represent the location of an animal and can be used to both imagine positions in an environment and to navigate within an environment. But these same cells actually break up delays across time. And basically, it's almost as if the animal has a, a spatial map across the delay which is a very cognitive event and is not spatial it's actually temporal so there we see a very similar use of the neural system but in a delay in a temporal aspect instead of in a spatial aspect
1: but you could argue that you'd get that for free because movement in space implies that yes. you have a temporal component right I agree huh? I agree and I'm not
0: one of the dangers, of course, is how much if you say, well, it's for free, does mm-hmm. that make it less cognitive? Uh, sure. right. But, no, but I think that's an important point, right? That a lot of these things, these processes, are evolved to, to work in such a way that they can solve these cognitive mm-hmm. problems by building on other components.
1: Right, but then it seems you would agree with Tony's contention that it might be co-opted in for other kinds of functions and cognitive mm-hmm. operations.
0: Well, so... The big example, for example, that we've been looking at has been this thing called mental time travel, mm-hmm. which is the ability to look to the future and to imagine yourself. We know that when humans do this, they actually construct a complete, essentially an episodic event of that future. You know, what, is, what, what am I going to be wearing? Where am I going to be? Who am I going to be with? What's the world going to look like? And we know that the hippocampus is very involved in that construction, that future construction in humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, We know that the rats can construct spatial components in that future. What we don't know, and I emphasize the word don't know as compared to no, it's not true, Mm -hmm. right? We don't know whether rats, when they imagine that future, are simply imagining the location or imagining the entire episode of all of the flavors and other components. Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect, given some of the data we've seen, that they are, in fact, constructing that complete future. Mm -hmm. Right. But are
2: they doing it in a fairly context-bound way in that of the options I have now, I could go that way and I can imagine mental time travel if I went this this way, but I can't imagine what I would do tomorrow or next week. Right.
0: So the, the short answer is I'm not sure how we'd measure it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, the real problem is that until I know how to measure it, I don't want to say it doesn't exist. Um, that's been... You know, for me over the last few years, this idea of, well, I didn't think rats could even look at the future until we figured out how to measure it, which is why I brought up this, this whole decoding stuff at the beginning, because it's that mathematical technology of decoding that allows us to measure these non-local representations of this future space. So the question is, how do we measure that episodic future event beyond space? Um, I mean... Yes, I'm pretty sure that rats are not writing Harry Potter, right? <laughs> they're not, you know, actually constructing big fantasy novels that they can, you know, about all possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's pretty clear.
1: <laughs> but another, and so something you go back to the old question posed by Tolman about these cognitive maps, whether they're local or global, right? He, would, he was talking about whether they're, they're, they have sort of very, delineated strips of information in there or whether it provides more global information. And you're saying right now, given the data we have, we actually don't know whether these episodic memories that the hippocampus forms in the red are local or more inter- integrated and contextual. But is that really is that really fair to say? No, I would not have separated the local-global
0: separation that way. I don't think that's what Tolman's local-global no. distinction was, um, as I understood it. I understood it being more can you construct novel sequences novel novel connections within your map if you have a very thin strip of information mm-hmm. and you're looking i know you know i know what this street looks like and i know what stores are on this mm-hmm. street and i have another street a block away that i know the stores but i don't know how to cross those right. whereas mm-hmm. if you have the global connection you can do all those crosses mm-hmm. which is the shortcut story right right that tolman one of tolman's mm-hmm. points was if you have a cognitive map you can do shortcuts that's right it's very, very clear that the rats have a broad map on which they can do shortcuts mm-hmm. and that they can actually connect up information in novel ways. Right. That's, that's solid. Mm-hmm. Whether the information is more than context within a specific location, that is, could they imagine a completely new non-spatial context connection, mm-hmm. such as... You know, well, I can imagine elves and dwarves Mm -hmm. and Tolkien and all that stuff, right? I don't know whether rats can do that. But Mm -hmm. again, I don't know how I'd measure it. And if I don't know how to measure
1: it, I don't know how to Mm -hmm. disprove it. Okay. But look, even though we might not be that clear about the boundaries of these, the episodic memories rats can form, what you have shown us a lot of data on today is this time travel component. Yes. Right? So, so w- what are the key observations there that you think are providing us insight on the ability of time travel in, in rats? Well, the, the key is um, that... Or mental time travel, I should say.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. The key is that the representations are self-consistent representations. That is, the neural signature is not noise. It's actually a specific neural signature of that other location. So the neurons at the current lo- that represent the current location stop firing. The neurons at that other location start firing, mm-hmm. and only the neurons that are at that other location start firing.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: that tells us that it is a good representation of that other place. Right. So that's one piece.
1: No, but practically, that means you first run the RAT, you identify place cell responses. You know, okay, here I have a set of cells that respond to location A, I have another set of cells respond to location B, and what you now observe is that while in the future trial, the animal is in location A, the cells that correspond to location B start to fire. Correct. Right? That, yes. This is the signature. That's the, the signature. The time,
0: right? So there's a few processes that connect that up to cognition. And I think that it's important that when we talk about it, this is really coming primarily in our data in terms of this deliberation story. And so what you really need to do in order to get there is ask what are the features that you should see in a deliberation event. And those features are that, for example, that the signal should be ahead of the animal, not behind the animal, Mm -hmm. because he's presumably deliberating about what he's going to do, um, for example.
1: Well, that is an interesting assumption, right? Because there you're just saying, look, the the spatial trajectory the animal follows will also correspond with its future. Correct. But that's more like a constraint. You impose the task. But there's
0: nothing that prevents, for example the mental tribe travel from going backwards, right? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, the animal could just as easily be representing past events, events behind him, Mm -hmm. right? But practically, we see them being in front. The second piece, which I think is really critical, is their serial. That is, it is representation of one side or the other, Mm -hmm. not both together. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just that it's spreading activation into the future. It's actually spreading down a very specific path and I think that's another key factor mm-hmm. that suggests, actually suggests what Tony's asking about, that it's, it's much more of an actual episodic event, right? It's, it's this, what if I go right? What happens? And then what if I go left? What
1: happens? Mm-hmm. So, but then in, uh, you do impose certain constraints with the task. That means it's an, it's an alley, alley, the animal runs through, yes. or an elevated platform, So it's not that the animal can move freely in an open space. Correct. Right. So do you see that as a a limitation to the decoding? I see it as a practical step to
0: being able to see the data we've seen Mm -hmm. so far. And I would very much like to do an open space. Mm -hmm. There are physical problems in terms of running on a physical maze. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to, say, have the animal come back, if you go to left, you go the same distance left and right. You can come back, but if you have a, a kind of forty five degree angle, the mm-hmm. animal can't. The path back will be too long. Mm-hmm. So there's physical realities that we have to we have to put the animal in VR. Sure, exactly right. <laughs> to to yeah. break, mm-hmm. um, we haven't done that yet, but mm-hmm.
1: it's certainly you know on the table. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, we built technology for that, so we can right. talk about it. But now you also mentioned that. Um, you might see these forward sweeps, but uh, at decision points, however, at the feeder sites, which, which in some sense is a termination point of a behavioral sequence, mm-hmm. you get a very different kind of dynamic, right? You have these sort of these these high frequency events. Yes. so are they significant for this idea of mental time travel?
0: Well, they are also good representations in the sense that they are consistent representations of other components of the task. So Mm -hmm. for example, again, the animals at location A, and now the cells at A do not fire, and the cells at B do fire. So again, we have this consistent jump. What's interesting about those data is that they're actually sequences on the track. And the sequences are both uh, they'll, they'll go in directions the animal has never traveled. They'll go across paths the animal has never actually traveled sequentially. Mm-hmm. And it, so it might be, I know how to go from you know, the house to the library to the stadium. Or I go from the house to the library, and I know how to go from my house to the stadium. But now I actually know how to go from the library to the stadium. Mm-hmm. I just go library to house to stadium, right? That's a new path right. that I've never actually run. And we know that rats can rep, that they'll they'll we will see representations of that mm-hmm. during these high frequency events. So it tells us that, you know, coming back to this cognitive map point, it suggests that animals have that more global representation mm-hmm. of the cognitive map where they are able to physically uh, or sorry, mentally, not physically, but mentally actually connect up mm-hmm. things that have
1: never been physically connected right. up. But now, so at, at, at these termination points, these high frequency events, you might see forward and backward sequences. Yes. Okay. So now, now the situation is already is changing. Correct. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, if you start to see what you call shortcuts, yes. Actually, you could argue, well, that is neither forward nor backward. That's right. It's more like an implication of the information you have sampled. That's would right. Do you agree with that? Yes. So, what aspect of cognition would that reflect?
0: I think it's about imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually daydreaming. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like, you know, when somebody's sitting in the talk and they're not paying attention and they start thinking about other things, right? I think that's very much what we're seeing, you mm-hmm. know? Um, you know, I mean, I can't say the animal's dreaming, right? But we know that when humans, for example, dream that, or when they imagine, when a human imagines things, like imagines a face, mm-hmm. right? The same part of the brain that is active when they perceive a face, Becomes active, Mm -hmm. so should we be surprised that when a a rat is imagining other places, the areas representing those other places become active? Mm -hmm. Right. So I I think you're seeing kind of imagination and thinking about how the world is structured. Mm
1: -hmm. But is it also what you call it insight? Yeah, I'd be happy to call it insight. But then. can you say something about the dynamics of this? Because in some sense, if I'm exploring my maze, here I am, I'm the rat, exploring the maze, I'm driving my, my my hippocampal cells that you are decoding sort of time-locked to my action in space. Yes. Right? But now in these sweeps, I'm also time morphing, if time-warping. My, yes. My, because I'm not replaying that at the same real-time as Correct. I... So, so what's the relationship there between the dynamics and of this kind of... Well, of cognition
0: this? happens faster than behavior. Okay. <laughs> and, but, I mean, I agree with you. And mm-hmm. so there's definitely... We know that it's faster. Um, it's about 40 times faster than mm-hmm. behavior. Um, just that's the data. Why it's 40 times faster, mm-hmm. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. What is the mechanism that makes it 40 times faster? Mm-hmm. Again, I have no idea. It's mm-hmm. a very interesting open question. Okay. But if, for example... You can use this decoding mathematics to ask what speed of sequence is the best description of your data? Mm -hmm. Is it the speed of the animal? Is it seven times faster? Is it 15? Is it 40? So we did this and at every moment we said, which is the most Mm -hmm. active, which is the best model, right? So most of the time it'd be about one to seven times because of this this thing called phase precession where Mm -hmm. the the place cells do. At these moments of sweeps, it seems to be 15 times faster. It looks like it's kind of a a long, a faster Mm -hmm. event. And then at these sharp waves, at these replay events, these events you're talking about at the feeders, they were 40 times faster. Mm -hmm. What was interesting to us is we could actually go in with the look at the speed of decoding and then ask, can we find the events? Mm -hmm. And we actually could construct and find the events from those speeds. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it does happen faster. Why it happens faster is a mm-hmm. really interesting question. But
1: is this constrained by the basic rhythmicity of the structure you look at? Like hippocampus, you know, you have a, you have a very definite theta cycle. You have a gamma uh, right. a range uh, of oscillations within the theta. Yes. Isn't that already constraining, let's say, the, the, the rhythmicity of these replay events? I would assume so. Okay. It's... I mean, now, again, now we're talking the
0: the phys- the fact that this is a physical brain, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that it's a physical brain means that you have connections. You have – your your circuits are actually driving your system. And so the question is, what is the mechanism within those circuits that enables this rhythmicity and this mm-hmm. speed and this learning and all of this? That's a mm-hmm. fascinating question. There's mm-hmm. lots and lots of labs working right. on that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I don't think the answer is known at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: So when people have talked about uh, these sequences in the past, and uh, it's been known for some time, they've often done so in the context of memory consolidation, and they've argued that if these processes are interrupted so you don't get enough sleep, then you don't consolidate memories. So is, is that the same thing, or is that a different explanation for this? So it
0: turns out there's been fascinating data over the last five years or so which has suggested that these events, these called replay events, these sharp wave events, during waking states are different than during sleep states. Now, there's nothing we've been able to directly observe within them in terms of the frequencies or other parameters that we've been able to figure out that's different. But if you interrupt them during sleep, you interrupt consolidation. You interrupt the transfer of of memory from the hippocampus, the semanticization of memory from hippocampus to, to other structures. However, uh, Lauren Frank's uh, lab, Jadov, is the first author of the paper, showed that if you disrupt these events during waking states, you actually disrupt decision-making. You actually disrupt working memory within the task, not the consolidation afterwards. We actually looked at the content of these events during waking states and sleep states, and during the waking states, you see a lot of things that relate to insight, shortcuts, forward, backward, Mm it seems it's almost kind of covering the space as if it's just exploring the space mentally. But during sleep, they're almost always forward. They're almost always replaying the actual events. And of course, that's what you want. If you're consolidating memory, Mm. you don't really want to consolidate the space. You don't want to explore the space. You want to consolidate what actually happened. And so it suggests that what may well be happening, and I emphasize the word may because this is exactly where the field is right now, is that the waking, these events during waking states are more involved in some sort of insight, imagination, processing, trying to figure out what's going on. And during sleep, it's more of a consolidation event.
2: Mm-hmm. Not dreaming. The rats aren't dreaming.
0: I think the rat's dreaming. <laughs> I don't have proof it is. But of course, there is this uh, new data from, um, I should know the authors, where they did actually an fMRI study. I don't know how they got the people to sleep in the fMRI machine, but they did. And they were able to show that after dreaming, these are humans, so they could wake them up and actually say, what were you dreaming about? That they were actually able to use similar decoding methods to show that if the dream contained people, the face areas were active. And if the dream contained landscapes, the landscape areas were active. And so just as you know, lots of data from you know, Nancy Kanwisher's lab and many other labs have shown that if you imagine a face, you're using the face part of cortex. This paper, again, I apologize, I should know the authors (laughs) offhand, Uh, but it was in Science about a year ago. Uh, This paper showed that during during dreams, and we know the dreams because we asked the people, or they asked the people, and the people said they were dreaming, these same structures were active. Now, Um, are rats dreaming? I don't know.
2: Well, I guess you would look for correlated activity or certainly uh, temporary related activity in the sensory areas. Yes, uh,
0: and those exist. Right. That has been shown to exist during these sleep con- events, which during the sleep events, you definitely get correlated activity in cortical areas. Um, and you also get um, that actually after these events, the activities in the, in the cortical areas actually tie together better. Suggesting that there is some sort of transfer of mm-hmm. information going into the cortex.
2: So, but you would want to allow some uh, things that humans can do that rats can't do. Well, I mean,
0: rats don't talk to us. Okay, but
2: <laughs> beyond language, which most people will agree, but for instance, an ability maybe to uh, frame what you're thinking about or imagining about in the future is maybe something that we're particularly good at. So I can, you know, imagine some arbitrary event, or I can. Im- ask you to imagine yourself in some arbitrary place, arbitrary time, and you can think that through. Is, is that something maybe that rat circuits are, would be less able to do? Or you just want to leave that for future research?
0: I would leave that for future research, but I think that we, I mean, I don't want to claim that rats are small humans. That's pretty clear, right? And, and beyond language, you know, when we imagine the future, we're imagining decades. We can imagine centuries ahead. We can imagine, you know, normal humans plan about 10 years ahead typically a typical human you know why is a human going to college well they'll tell you because i want to go get a job in 5 years right so typical humans are planning years ahead rats are not planning years ahead right right so the i think it's more a question of scale that's changing and i mean we're not surprised to see that there are similarities in you know other organs right so why should we see not expect to see similarities
1: in these uh in these cognitive structures, right? Well, it can also be just a difference of degree, right? Yes. It doesn't need to be the case that the fundamental processes are qualitatively different. Exactly. Yeah? But right. then the question is so, so, sort of, we have an idea now on, on let's say, the basic memory dynamics of, of hippocampus as you have me- assessed it experimentally. And we have these different kinds of, of, of replay events forward and backward. Um, but to whom's benefit? So I'm here, I'm, I'm the rat, I'm running in the maze, I'm at the reward site, I have a forward or a backward uh, replay. Um, who's going to process that? Am I throwing this out for my neighbor or for my other cells in the hippocampus? Am I sending this to other brain areas? The short answer is we don't know. Okay. Um, we do know that other
0: structures are listening to those events. Uh, we know, for example, that the ventral striatum, the nucleus accumbens, which is a structure involved in um, evaluation and motivation, mm-hmm. um, is in fact, has reward information in it, that those reward cells also replay. That's Kary and Lansink's data from Cyril Pennartz's lab, mm-hmm. where they saw that um, the sequence of hippocampal replays, it, I think during sleep states, if I'm remembering right, actually triggers immediately following the appropriate ventral striatal information, which actually suggests Mm -hmm. that it's not just... Because in fact, they had different flavors and they saw the correct flavors being decoded, which again suggests actually it's more than just space, that it actually contains space and these other information as well, at least in ventral striatum and accumbens. It's known that cortical systems are, as I said, listening to these... Uh, replay events, but it's quite possible that the replay events are actually uh, also affecting hippocampus internally. Right? That would not surprise me, um, but it's, I don't think it's known at this point.
2: So when, when we talk about the human literature on hippocampus, we usually use the word episodic memory, right. uh, and essentially you're saying rats have episodic yes. memory, and that space is one part of that.
0: That's right, and one of the things that I think is very interesting is that I would say actually that it's mostly about episodic future than episodic past. There's uh, some very beautiful kind of discussions coming out in the human literature about hippocampus as being necessary for imagining the future, which is an episodic, it's called episodic future thinking. And one of the things that's interesting is of course episodic memory, episodic past thinking is notoriously fragile, right? It's very easy to manipulate that by framing questions in strange ways. Or not even strange ways, just even normal questions, can change what you think you remember. And I think, and I think that a lot of the human literature now is coming to this, uh, is that the reason that episodic memory is so fragile is it's not really a memory. It's actually an imagination of the past. And in the same way that you imagine the future, you're actually taking these pieces of memory and putting them back together, And because you're reconstructing, you're rebuilding that past using hippocampus, this is why you need hippocampus for episodic past, episodic memory, is that you're actually doing this kind of episodic past thinking.
2: But one of the the theories of what the hippocampus might be doing is not so much about uh, events or processes in time, but this idea that it's doing pattern completion. So you are are given some information uh, through your sensory systems and uh, from what your hippocampus encodes about maybe where it is in space, it's able to fill that out. Right. So, so that kind of pattern completion aspect of what the hippocampus is doing is another thing that it's contributing beyond being able to forecast future events. But
0: that's, what, that's the whole point of that future event is you need to pattern complete it because what you need to do is you need to take the pieces and put them together and complete the pattern Sometimes in novel ways, sometimes in not novel ways. Basically, you have to, as I said, the reason you have the memory is to construct that future, and the, so that you what? have to, you have to take those pieces and you use pattern completion processes to rebuild that system.
2: When people talk about autobiographical memory, though, they often talk about involuntary autobiographical memory, which is where they're referring to the fact that something about the current context reminds me yes. of a past event, and uh, one explanation of that is it's about reinterpreting the current context, you know, in in relation to things that have happened in the past. So I think maybe you push it too far to say it's about imagining the future because it's also about understanding the present.
0: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I would very much argue that one of the reasons we have episodic past thinking and episodic memory is so we can reinterpret that past,
1: and we can say,
0: "Oh, that's what that really meant."
1: Yeah, but so in some sense, so. Y- a tradi- you're sort of con- making a contrast to the more traditional view of memory, where it's like a storehouse of the facts of, right. of that you encounter. Exactly. Right? And then, basically, what you're saying is, well, maybe these so-called facts are more malleable to change than we thought they would be. Yes. Like memory is continuously constructive. That's right. Right. However. There are still, if you want, ingredients of that past in there. Yes, that it's not completely arbitrary. Absolutely. Okay. So I, d- I don't think so. If you say, "Look, it's focused on on the future," um, is is that not, let's say, a bit of an overstatement in that sense? Well, I think it does both future and
0: past. Mm-hmm. But I actually think we have to be careful because the assi- you know we're talking as if the future is completely open and not and malleable and and plastic and all that. But the fact is we use those same ingredients to predict the future mm-hmm. you know when i you know when i came to give the talk this is the first time i've been in barcelona it's the first time i've been in this auditorium but i've given talks to other people in other you know with similar audiences and similar backgrounds right so i i said to myself okay i can take my ingredients from all these other pieces and i can use this to construct that future mm-hmm. and again i'm using facts to do it i think that's why that you construct with those facts, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. I mean, the goal of memory is not to imagine what it could have been, and you could do that. That's mm-hmm. a, a counterfactual question, and worth one of the things that people do. Mm-hmm. In fact, we now know it's one of the things rats do. <laughs> but um, it is also true that sometimes your goal is to try to get as accurate a memory as possible, mm-hmm. right? The key is that that's actually hard, <laughs>
1: right. which is the no, whole— I mean, a-
0: that goes back to Elizabeth Loftus. right.
1: No, but isn't the cool consequence or an interesting consequence of that that maybe if you just take a hippocampal centric view on memory, the hippocampus just gets information from other extra hippocampal areas. And this might come from sensors, it might come from other memory systems. And it's just sitting there chunking out episodes. So, in some sense, you could argue, well, for for that memory system, like if you're if CA3, if you look at CA3, which is really a core memory system of, of the hippocampus. Whatever information I dump in there, whether it comes from a past experience or a current event, I actually don't care. I just compress this together in an episode irrespective of the origins of that, of that piece of information. And that would mean that as much as I'm predicting my past, I'm also sort of predicting my future. I mean, if you want, always remodeling my past, yes. given this mixing of current states with past states. Would you agree with that? I think
0: that's a very plausible explanation, and it's probably the most likely one. But at this point, I think it's also very important to say we don't actually have the connection between these mechanisms and the underlying circuitry. Mm -hmm. That is, we don't know what it is. And this is the point you're asking about the oscillations. We don't actually know what it is about those fundamental circuitry that is enabling these processes. Mm -hmm. We know these processes exist. We know that they're there in hippocampus. We know hippocampus is doing them. We know a lot about the circuitry of hippocampus. But at this point,
1: that connection mm-hmm. is still actually an open right. question. But the, the interesting thing is that, that the, then these hippocampal areas are equally predicting the past in the sense that if prediction errors relative to past events would exceed a certain acceptable threshold, you just change them. Would you Would you agree with that? Say that again. Well, for instance, in if you see sweeps in hippocampus that reflect memory, Mm -hmm. now you are in a position to actually measure the accuracy of that memory. You can pose the question: Well, was the rat exactly in that position, or was it sort of there? Is it like already, if you are massaging this memory to the current state, right? So, So, so in the data you have on that, do you see really, let's say, accurate, factual? replay mm. of past events that you really know x y is identical yeah or do you already see a no, massaging of that we already see the massaging there you go right? absolutely yeah. no the the
0: replay events are definitely not completely veridical mm-hmm. the question is which we don't know is how much of that noise matters right right sure. how much of that noise is actually reflecting or I should say not noise, how much of that difference Mm -hmm. is actually reflecting a change and how much of that difference is actually just noise. Right, exactly. And Mm -hmm. we know that it's not, I mean, (laughs) biology is messy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But how much of that is on which side, you Mm -hmm. know, is actually a very interesting open Mm -hmm. question. Okay,
2: so in your data, you showed us uh, a couple of examples. One of those was was what you call the Trial and Error, which is a, an idea going back to to Tomlin, but also mm-hmm. before that, I think it was Mertzinger and Gentry, 1931. Yes. So uh, and a very nice example of how when the rat gets to the top of a, a junction in the maze, it might glance left, and you can see a play out of what might happen if it was to go down that left tunnel. Uh, but uh, in a way, that... It, Uh, That's evidence to me that, uh, yes, he can plan ahead and uh, he can use past uh, experience in order to fill out what could happen in the immediate future. Uh, It's a little bit like the involuntary autobiographical memory ideas that you're reminded of stuff which is relevant to your current choice. But then you're also talking about situations where he was at a feeding point and then he would just replay being in other positions in, in the maze. So that perhaps is stronger evidence that the rat can imagine himself in other positions in the world. I mean, would you go that far?
0: Well, I would actually say we don't know how involuntary that forward sequence is. Right. Right. So, um, in fact, I, to be honest, my gut is it's much more voluntary than involuntary. Um, mostly, Why are you saying that? To be honest, mostly because when humans are doing this kind of deliberation moment, it's extremely voluntary, and it's very much... Um, you know very cognitive it in humans reaches conscious tends to reach consciousness Mm -hmm. it tends to be you compare it for example to a more automated behavior where in a human you've switched from this kind of very flexible slow deliberative mode to a very habitual kind of automatic mode in fact it tends to be less less reaching immediate consciousness and it often is kind of a but well, you ask, for example, a sports player, why did you do that? And they say it felt right, right? And in fact, you ask a sports player, we'll talk about being in the zone when things just kind of click. And I think what they're doing is recognizing that their habitual system, their procedural system is kind of working correctly. So I don't know how much of the, the rat forward sequence is voluntary. I've got air quotes here. <laughs> voluntary versus involuntary. Um, and I don't know how much of the replay happening is voluntary versus involuntary. Um, it's possible, and there are a lot of computational models that have suggested, that the events happening at the feeder sites is just what happens if you have the right connection structure and you put noise into the system and it kind of percolates over.
2: Okay, so you, the the, um, the events happening at the corners of the maze are, are, are more cognitive, or, but... Uh, and what you're saying is that perhaps the evidence at the feeder sites is is not perhaps active. I want to think about if I was in that part of the right. maze, it's just the noise in the hippocampus could give rise to these sorts of patterns.
0: So that's the that's the current theory. But let me give you a very interesting data point, which I still don't know what to make of it. Which is that we had an animal, uh, we had a, a, an experiment, and on this experiment, the animal would sometimes go only to one side of the maze for many, many trials and then would go to the other side of the maze, and vice versa, and it would do. But the point is, we could ask, how recently had it been on the current side of the maze or on the opposite side of the maze? And what we found is that it was more likely to imagine in these kind of, uh, during these uh, events happening at the feeder sites, this thing we're talking imagination insight kind of things, was much more likely to be on the opposite side of the maze when the animal had not been there recently and that's strange that doesn't fit the computational models of how we had understand the circuit to be and suggests that somehow whatever role this is playing it actually depended on a lack of activity a lack of recent experience now the animal knew the maze very well it had been on this maze many many days but on this day it was say mostly on the left side we tend to see more right-side replays,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is strange. And one possibility is that it's doing it to try to keep everything balanced and trying to say, well, you can't forget what's over there. I may need to know it at some time. Right? But again, you run into this mechanism problem. What's the mechanism but, but of it?
1: It doesn't, it doesn't sound like such a complicated um, phenomenon to, to interpret from a network perspective if you would allow... Uh, dynamics of, let's say, short-term plasticity where you say, right. look, I have known trajectories, I'm suppressing their responses, I have, let's say, uh, lateral interactions among different uh, locations in this environment I've visited, they can now become active because of blah, blah, blah. Right? Yes, we can, absolutely. We can tell each other stories like That's this. Right. right. Yes. So then, given that I can, if you want, not trivialize, but sort of interpret it in mechanical terms, why then do you find this such an important data point? Because the short-term plasticity story that we would want
0: to tell, that we would have assumed to tell, is based that recent activity would make a cell more likely to fire, and in order to explain this specific data point, you have to suggest that the cell is less likely to, to participate. No, but I, I can just use an habituation component. Right. I can have the question. Then is. Why, on other tasks is the more recent stuff the stuff that gets replayed? Mm-hmm. right So the problem here is that I can explain this experiment mm-hmm. with by creating these kind of habituation kind right. of you know you know adding in habituation parameters and stuff like that. but there are other tasks where actually the most recent stuff seems mm-hmm. to be replayed. so we now have to say, now our parameters for our mechanistic explanation depend on task mm-hmm. in strange and complex
1: ways. Right, okay. And so mm-hmm. yes, that's possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But why? It would not be a satisfactory story because it would be ad hoc given one task only. Exactly. Right? But then my point is why why would you bring in an interpretation that uses the notion of voluntary? I'm not I'm not
0: I was doing that more to point out that it wasn't just simply this noise model. Okay, okay. okay I right. understand.
1: Okay, right. good.
0: I, I don't know how voluntary these things are mm-hmm. because I'm
1: not sure what the word voluntary means. No, right, That's what I want to this. ask you. How, what would be the signatures of voluntary operations in the preparation you look at? What
0: I would say is that when we look at human sequences and we identify some sequences of voluntary and not voluntary mm-hmm. in humans, which is its own debate, But once we've made that categorization, then we can say, what's the information processing in the brain structures in humans under these quote unquote voluntary conditions? And then we can say, okay, does the rat show the same same information processing in the same brain structures? And so then the question is, well, you could either argue humans are not voluntary, or you can argue. That rats are voluntary mm-hmm. but you're no longer allowed to argue humans are voluntary and rats are not
1: right
2: so i think in the episodic memory literature people are using that in a very specific way so uh involuntary uh, memory is when things just come into your mind uh and you you didn't intend that to come into your mind and it may be an unpleasant memory of something that's associated with what's happening whereas voluntary autobiographical memories when you, you specifically try to remember what you were doing last Friday or right. you know, Christmas Eve or whatever. So you're working to retrieve that memory. And it, that would be very interesting, obviously, if, if we had any evidence at all that a rat could do something like that.
0: Well, one of the data points that we're still kind of finalizing the data on, so I don't want to make too much of it yet, we're still looking at this. We have an abstracted SFN, for example, talking about this. Um, so it's going to be out soon. <laughs> um, is that there? It looks like hippocampus is being pulled during these moments by other brain structures. So it looks like, in fact, prefrontal cortex in particular is basically saying to the hippocampus, "Go find stuff." So in a sense, it's possible that that could get closer to your your yeah. voluntary story that some other system is actually saying to hippocampus, "I need to remember this now." Mm-hmm. Go figure this out for me.
2: Yeah, you need some way of ignoring the, the sensory context and saying, this is the context, I want you to consider, uh, construct a, a, right. a scenario mm-hmm. starting from there.
0: is there a way to actually, I'm trying to think if there's a way, so what we'd want to do is have a way of essentially shutting off the sensory context and still seeing that at this moment, it's hard to do because it's really hard to shut off
1: Sensory context mm.
0: well, in but a controlled way
1: it does enter the hippocampus over very specific pathways that yes. are anatomically well defined and not yes. mixed yes, so this might suggest that this allows you to let's say segment these input streams, yes, right biasing towards towards let's say a memory component or or a sensory component or an action component yes, w- would you buy that? Yes, okay, absolutely uh, that- it's a very hard experiment to do though. But well, yes. <laughs> we're hoping that you will do it soon. <laughs> <laughs> but now we, t- we looked at this. So Tony mentioned this, this, vicarious trial and error. And um, I was getting confused here. And but it's not you just not only looked at that behavior for historical reasons. You have tied it now in a very specific way to the memory dynamics and the task performance of the animal. So that means. It's only in a very specific moment in the test that rats actually display this behavior. It's not that they do it all the time. Correct. So, so, so what is exactly the, the structure that you, that you found there?
0: So actually, the, Tolman actually saw this as well, that vicarious trial and error tends to happen during early learning stages, during stages when the animal is, knows the environment that he needs to work on or that it needs to work on, um, because both males and females do vicarious trial and error, <laughs> um, that it knows the environment that it needs to work on, but it doesn't quite know what to do on that environment. Mm-hmm. And once it actually gets enough experience that it no longer, essentially, no longer needs to search, and mm-hmm. it says, "I know at this moment I'm going to t- go left," then it the vicarious trial and error goes away, mm-hmm. um, and we can put it back. We can reinitiate it. By actually doing a reversal where we force the animal and say well what you've been doing all this time doesn't work anymore Mm -hmm. um i think of actually you know my classic example is driving to work the first time you're driving to work you're planning you're paying attention you're thinking about where you're going to go you're doing all this deliberative stuff but if you do it every day for weeks months or years suddenly you're doing it you're doing it in your sleep you're doing it you know you're driving your friend to your office instead of the airport because you got into a good conversation Mm -hmm. you know Luckily, in Minnesota, the airport's close (laughs) enough that that didn't mean he missed his flight. Um, He was from New York and was really worried (laughs) where that would have been a disaster. Right, exactly. uh, um, But actually, so for example, in my drive to work, uh, they actually closed one of the roads. And suddenly, I had to recognize at this one intersection, which was actually significantly before the road got closed, Mm -hmm. that I needed to turn a different way. And it was actually very interesting kind of seeing my own internal system about identifying at this moment I have to, I found myself doing a lot of vicarious trial and Mm -hmm. error, luckily in with my head and not with the car. (laughs) Right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, actually this kind of reversal does Mm -hmm. trigger that.
1: You were hoping for the chocolate to fall from the sky as well.
0: It would be nice if it was European (laughs) chocolate, not (laughs) American chocolate. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But look, so the point is you said, okay, deliberation requires both search and evaluation. Yes. And you see this vicarious trial and error as a signature of search. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So are you suggesting with that that this is really an active strategy to obtain information from the environment?
0: No. Okay. Um, That's an open question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think so. And I don't think so in large part because we have also seen vicarious trial and error in situations where the reward site is actually out of sight of the animal. So down tunnels that the Mm -hmm. animal has to go. Um, And in our environments, the environmental signatures are very, very different. There's not, it's not a, it's not a discrimination cue. So it's not a lot of difficulty for the animal to know what's on the left side or what's on the right side. So I think this is actually more a reflection of an internal process in which the animal is trying to figure out what the consequences of going down that path are. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that they're trying to trigger the sensory, although it might be that they're trying to physically trigger this involuntary memory sequence. Or it may just be that actually the, in, the, the voluntary memory sequence, uh, if I can use that distinction, the voluntary memory sequence is actually triggering an initial motion. right? That is kind of saying, well, okay, let's start to go, wait, no, I don't want to go left. Mm -hmm. right and i think that may well be what a lot of this vicarious trial and error is
1: okay but so so you're saying it's not necessarily an orienting response to obtain information it's more like an action that you use as a recall cue well it's either an action as a recall cue or an epiphenomenon Mm -hmm. of
0: the uh, of the internal orienting response Mm -hmm. which is also driving kind of the beginning of the action right and i don't know which one it is i
1: or it could—it doesn't need to be an exclusive choice. No, it might be both, right? That's right. That's okay. right. Mm-hmm. So, but then, um, is that—is that can we really call that deliberation as such, in this—in—in in these experiments, right? So, also in, in your case, uh, so so you, the road to the airport is or to your work is closed, and now suddenly you have to sort of find a new route. So you could say, well, look, I'm just obtaining sensory information. I'm consulting memory. I'm performing actions. It could also be like you search through a list of alternative options as opposed to really really actively modeling the consequences of future actions.
0: Well, we know that they are, in fact, actively modeling the consequences of those future actions Mm because we know that there are direct representations through those options. What I think the real key is that we also know that there's reward extra information, particularly in the ventral striatum, particularly mm-hmm. in the areas of ventral striatum that hippocampus projects to, that reflects those reward information. So not only is there a representation of those future options,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but there's also a representation of the value or the reward that they're going to get at the ends of those options. Mm-hmm. Which suggests that it actually is a
1: search and evaluate process. Right. Okay. So now, at, so, so so we we learn a lot now about the specific memory dynamics of the hippocampus, but as you already indicated, hippocampus doesn't operate in isolation. Right. It, it is right. part of a circuit of a loop. Essentially, it's a loop with many other parts of the brain, and at some point, you you showed us at least how, in your view. This loop is interconnected with some other key areas in cortex and and subcortical areas. So, how do you see that 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 overall loop play out? What do the different stages in this loop do?
0: Well, the key, I think, that that we have. I mean, there's 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 issues of the loop from the circuitry perspective of how does information get in from, for example, entorhinal cortex and the different parts of entorhinal cortex. Um, and we could certainly talk about that. But I think from our at this point from this deliberation moment what we know is that hippocampus contains the information searching through that future um, that it reflects that information and the evidence at least both from human when they have damaged hippocampi and from other uh, animal experiments where people have manipulated hippocampus suggests that hippocampus is critical to that future construction We know that the Uh, We have some evidence that there's prefrontal information coming in. Um, We have some information that the ventral striatum is doing evaluation. But at this point, how they all interact on a moment-by-moment basis is actually something that we we don't know Mm -hmm. right now. And that's actually something we're very excited Mm -hmm. to start going
1: to look for. But now in that circuit that you delineate, which of these four different regions you mentioned would have the biggest impact when it would be lesioned? Would it be the hippocampus? So would it be ventral striatum, would be prefrontal cortex. They would all have different impacts. Of course. Yeah. But which one? Which one would be the most critical? Well, critical for what? So solving for, the task. Well, I think
0: they're all involved in solving mm-hmm. the task. They're all involved differently. So, for example, I think that without ventral striatum, although to be honest, we have not done this experiment, I would predict that without a ventral striatum, you'd have a lot of trouble differentiating values of rewards. Mm-hmm. Right, and we know from other other people have found that it's critical for recognizing evaluation. Um, we know that again from other people that orbitofrontal cortex, which is another structure involved in a lot of this, is very critical when you have different flavors, when you have to add, when you have to integrate across multiple reward information. Right, that it's very important when you're doing kind of logic from. Mm-hmm. A implies B, B implies C, C implies I get reward, so I need to actually go to A. right? These kinds of logical chains, you need orbitofrontal cortex to be able to make these kind of logical chains. Mm-hmm. Um, the How these structures actually are... I mean, they're all critical for the task, and the key is that they're going to each play a different computational role. And mm-hmm. so the way I look at it is... It's more a question of how does the computation of the
1: animal change when you've taken that out of the circuit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you you also indicated yourself during your talk that for many of these tasks you can just remove the hippocampus and you can still uh, solve it. It You might be a bit less efficient. It might take you a bit longer to acquire. But the way we test at least the rat brain, in many of these tasks, you can actually manage throughout your hippocampus. Yes. So
0: I think the key here is that, and this is why we have multiple decision systems, right? Because, in fact, there are many ways to solve many of these problems. Um, One of my favorite examples is um, Varka Kottam's data on children who have damaged hippocampi. I believe Mm -hmm. they have uh, uh, congenital issues where they have no hippocampus. They actually do okay in school. But it turns out that they do okay in school by working completely semantically. Mm-hmm. And they work in school by a very different process. They actually are able to pass their classes, and they do well and all that stuff. But they have a completely different process by which they solve their behaviors. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we have these many, many systems, right? Because evolutionarily, right, we didn't usually have a doctor we could go fix, mm-hmm. right? So... When, an animal, when a person solves, or an animal solves a task without a hippocampus, they do it very differently. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you can provide, if you get the right probe trial, you can actually construct probe trials whereby they behave differently. Mm-hmm. Right? One of my favorite examples is the Tolman-Hull debate on the T-mace, where they trained animals to go from the south arm to the west arm of a T-mace. And they both did it identically. And if you look at the path from the south arm to the west arm, They look the same. But if you put the animal on the north arm, so I should say, Tolman argued that the animals were going to the place. Tolman said, I know where I am. I'm at the south arm. I know where I want to be. I want to be at the west arm. How do I get there? This is Tolman's explanation. Hull says, no, 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 it's all stimulus response. The animal Mm -hmm. says, I'm on the maze, I turn left. So now put the animal on the north arm of a plus. Tolman's animals will say, I'm on the north arm, I want to be on the west arm. I want to make a different action, turn right, mm-hmm. and go to the same place. Halls' animals will say, I'm on the maze, turn left. Mm-hmm. They end up at a different location. It's not that one of these is right and one of these is wrong. It's that this is two ways of solving the task computationally. And in fact, turns out that what happens is that early on, the animals look like Tolman, Mm -hmm. and late, the animals look like Hull, and they actually switch from one system to the (laughs) other.
2: But the the Tolman-like system can be training the other one. Uh, There's Mm. models by, for instance, Richard Sutton, where he he has reinforcement learning going on, but he also builds a forward model, and very much in the same way as your rats, he plays sequences through the forward model and uses that to train the reinforcement learning system. Yes. So, uh, and do you see that as happening then in the Uh, rat brain? So,
0: um... I suspect yes. Um, we know, for example, we've done models, we've built models where this kind of consolidated replay will train up a downstream structure that can learn a more habit-based kind of action chain story. Um, one of the experiments I've always wanted to run, I've never actually run it, uh, mostly because I just haven't done it yet. Um, and If somebody else wants to do it, it's fine, uh, is to run one of these T maze plus maze experiments where the animals switch from one to the other, but actually to train them for only a limited time and then put them back in their home cage and leave them for several weeks and then test them. Do they switch? Right? Is it actually the experience that creates the switch? Is it the mental part that creates the switch? Is it time? We don't know that answer. Mm-hmm. Right? But we know that, you know, when somebody is learning from Actually, the example we just came up with, I was just talking to uh, an interview from uh, Sports Illustrated, which is an American magazine. Mm -hmm. They're asking me about American football players who have to learn these big, large playbooks, which, of course, are all X's and O's and declarative memory, and yet they have to actually execute it in procedural memory on the field. And so there's this very interesting transition that these people have to do, right, by imagining and simulating and practicing and learning and and do that transition. Mm -hmm. Um, It definitely happens. What the exact processes are is a fascinating question.
1: But, David, I would like to to come back to your earlier remark where you said, well, uh, yes, it's true, you can lesion hippocampus, animals can still perform the task, but maybe that just shows redundancy. But isn't that a little bit too easy? Because you could argue, look, Hippocampus does stand out on anatomical grounds. It's a very unique kind of organization that you will actually not really find in that way anywhere else in the brain. As you said yourself, the mind is the brain, so that should imply that that anatomical structure, that structure is telling us something about a unique function. Yes, and And I uh, want to... The second part, it's a two-pronged attack. Okay, okay? (laughs) go ahead. The second second prong here is that... um, Maybe this then implies that the tests we are using to understand the function of that structure are just not sensitive enough. Yes. Maybe the tests we're using are just too, let's say, coarse to really titrate out the specific contribution of hippocampus. And as a result, we are forced into this redundancy interpretation because our test is just not sensitive enough. I want to be
0: careful with the word redundancy. I'm sorry if I, if, if my use of the word redundancy mm-hmm. implied that they were all equivalent. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that at all. Um, the computation by which the other systems actually perform is very different. Mm-hmm. And so an animal, for example, I mean, giving the Tolman-Hull example that I showed, an animal with a hippocampal lesion, in fact, looks Hullian very quickly, mm-hmm. much more quickly than an animal actually with dorsal, with dorsal stridal damage, who kind of stays Tolmanian for a longer time, right? I, the, the task, the key is that these tasks are not clinical tasks, and we should not be saying that the Morris water maze is a hippocampal task. Mm-hmm. It's not. The hippocampus is necessary to solve the Morris water maze in a very specific way, but yet, and so if you train the Morris water maze in a different way, Right? for example, you train the animal for months and months, or you train the animal using this very large platform shrinking down to a small platform, you can train an animal to do the task without a hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Right. So the key is to actually think of what is the computation the hippocampus is performing? How does that computation then get used in this task? <clears throat> and can we construct a probe trial which will differentiate that computation from other computations? Mm-hmm. And I actually think, in fact, when I say redundancy, what I mean is many of the things we have to do in life are able to, or depend on, are able to be solved in these multiple ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't mean to imply that they're being solved in the same way at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so the, the last set of experiments you, you presented to us, which I thought were really very exciting, was dealing with the notion of regret in rats, which, which seems very counterintuitive yes um so what does regret really mean in, in case of a of a rodent so let me be very careful with what we actually found
0: in this data because of course it's easy to kind of go way overboard with mm-hmm. with the term what we found is in situations <laughs> in which we would expect it to induce regret in humans the animals behave differently and that be- and they their neurophysiology is different that behavior proves that they understand their own agency, that they understand that they made a mistake and they recognize that mistake. And so we were able to differentiate that. And we were able to show that during those moments there are representations of the previous event, that is Mm -hmm. the previous moment when they made the previous decision. And whether the animal feels regret at that moment is kind of the thing that makes all the popular media happy, mm-hmm. right? But the truth is what we actually found is there's different information processing happening in conditions where the animal recognizes it made a mistake by its own agency mm-hmm. and a case where the animal experiences a similar set of cues or an equivalent set of cues but makes a mistake not by – the, mm-hmm. the, the, the mistake is not of its own agency, and that we then saw that the information processing tracks that counterfactual, mm-hmm. which is critical to uh,
1: human regret. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should, we should try to understand the, the task a little bit better, right? So here we have um, a circular arena or a little tunnel through which your animal runs. And it's actually open. So it it's is open, it, okay. It's, it's open
0: field. It's op- it, well, it, it's a circular arena, but it's an it's a race track. Okay, ra- yeah, right. right. It's a race track. It's a race track. Right, right. track. Exactly. So there's cues everywhere. It's kind yes. of
1: the key. So and at four equally spaced points o- along this this circular track, you then have little zones, which you which you call to restaurants if you want, where the animal can sample a certain type of of food reward or right. a certain flavor. I don't, they smell yep. it or they eat it. They eat it. They actually eat it.
0: And they're different flavors and each flavor remains at a constant location throughout Mm -hmm. the entire training. So the animal knows that in the southwest corner there is going to be chocolate.
1: Exactly. And now you saw across the animals, you tested, they have have individual preferences.
0: Right. right? So well, there's an important step before we get to the individual preferences, which is that every time the animal encounters one of these zones, enters a restaurant Mm -hmm. we like to say, there's a tone a pitch mm-hmm. where the pitch of the tone tells the animal how long he's going to have to wait for mm-hmm. food and that allows the animal to make a decision to either stay or go right right mm-hmm. and so then because animals have thresholds for each of these different flavors we can identify the revealed preferences mm-hmm. so the animals will stay if it's less than a, if, the, if the the offer right the cost of this restaurant of this food pellet mm-hmm. is going to be small enough then the animal will stick around Right. And if it's going to be too long a delay, mm-hmm. the animal skips it. Right. And so that threshold allows us to measure how willing the animal is to spend mm-hmm. its time for that food. Yeah. And what we found is that different animals had different thresholds for different flavors, mm-hmm. but that they were consistent within animal. So
2: right. that
0: one animal would wait a long time for chocolate, mm-hmm. which tells us that that animal is willing to spend
1: more time on chocolate than on other things. Mm-hmm. Right. And also it was interesting there... In in the behavioral signature, they either decide to, to wait or they move on. It's not right. that they start waiting and then interrupt the waiting. Correct. So um, now what's the longest waiting time these rats are supposed to, uh, are willing to, to so suffer? for two of the rats,
0: we only went up to 30 seconds because mm-hmm. that gave us enough range. Okay. But for two of the rats, actually, um, the rats were willing to wait Th- every time at 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so we went up to 45 seconds. Okay. And that was long enough. But we've mm-hmm. seen rats wait some of the trials even 45 seconds for okay. some cases. Right.
1: But then well, you also impose a timeout, right? So a total they have 60 minutes to Correct. just consume whatever they, they can That's get. That's right. right. And then the point is that you're manipulating now these waiting times because you know the That's threshold right. value. Right? That's right. So in that way you can create, if you want, disappointment or regret. That's right the difference being disappointment is when you have unexpectedly let's say changed the a property they might find that they, that is different from what they thought it would get
0: right well it's 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 actually a random distribution mm-hmm. from 1 to from the 1 to 30 seconds so it's kind of a on the tail end of that distribution mm-hmm. that they just kind of they know it's somewhere in this thing and they kind of get the bad end of the
1: deal mm-hmm. so a good deal will be a short waiting time for a reward you like Right. And a bad deal is a long waiting time for a reward you don't like. That's right. Yeah. So uh, but now so so now now we understand the task and then the question is is it fair to interpret this in terms of agency because in some sense agency implies that there is a knowledge of the causal relationship of the agent with the environment. So you can say yeah, I did it. It was my choice. That's right. right. Um so what you observe is that when animals hit hit this point where they get let's say they have to wait longer than expected, right? right? By their own choice. You see certain signatures that you that you interpret as indicating regret. So what, what are these specific signatures? Well,
0: the key is actually you have to actually look in order to get the regret on this task you have to, have to look at a pair of of samples. Mm-hmm. And they have to actually have skipped a good deal to reach a bad deal. Mm-hmm and it's the skipping a good deal that they so we know by the fact that they either stay or go that they're making a decision right and the fact that they skip a good deal means mm-hmm. they've made a decision that is against their preferences
1: mm-hmm.
0: right and now they encounter a bad deal and what because they're time limited it means they've they've messed up mm-hmm. they've made a mistake and they've uh erred where they should have taken the good deal and they're not they're not allowed to go backwards mm-hmm. once they've left a deal the deal is rescinded No more, you know, it's only good while you're Mm -hmm. in the restaurant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Once you leave, you have to, you know, basically you have to go all the way around and try again, and it could be a completely different deal. So what we see is that at the moment when they have this mistake, where they've made a mistake and now they hit a bad deal, they'll stop, they look backwards, and at that moment, the orbitofrontal cortex and the ventral striatum represent the moment of entering the previous restaurant. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that we talked at the beginning of the podcast about this decoding, we're doing the same decoding operation, and this time not for the location of the animal, but for entering each of these different zones. Mm-hmm. And so we can say this is a good representation of the previous zone,
1: mm-hmm. which is right. a mental time travel to that moment. Yeah, so in some sense what, what the mental time travel entails is that you recall, let's say, the value essentially of that other zone. That's right. Right. So, so it's more like you, you you call up like a reference, like okay. But if I would have stick, if I would have stuck it out on the other side, this is what I would have gotten.
0: Well, so what's interesting is that we didn't actually see a very strong, although there's very strong representations of reward in these structures. That is, at the moment of reward, the cells fire. You mm-hmm. know, a subset of cells will fire massively for each different flavor, telling us very differentiable what each reward is. At this moment of quote regret unquote. The animal did not represent the reward it should have gotten. That it didn't represent the other, the reward. It actually represented the entry point mm-hmm. into
1: the other restaurant. Yeah, but wait. If you decode that from the ventral striatum, as you said earlier, that must reflect some sense of valuation, or not? That's a hypothesis. Um, but given the literature, given it the would literature. Be consistent.
0: It's quite likely that it's some sense of valuation. Mm-hmm. Actually, I suspect the orbitofrontal cortex is also some exactly sense Exactly right. Yes, right. absolutely. But we don't know that. What we know is that at that moment, there's a representation of that moment mm-hmm. in the task. Right. Um, whether there's actually a valuation mm-hmm. judgment associated with it would be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I'd really like to look at is whether there is some relationship between the cell firing patterns and the the value of each of the rewards but it's very noisy and it's very Mm -hmm. hard to decode with the limited data we have right exactly. my hope is that if as we gather more data Mm -hmm. we'll be able to actually determine whether in fact there's value representation at that moment if it's just the moment that's being
1: represented
0: Mm -hmm. and what right And of course one of the interesting Mm -hmm. questions is what's hippocampus doing at that moment
1: but now you could also argue that your task is like a rat gambling task and that you misinterpret it in some sense, right? Because I could also say, well, if I'm the rat, I'm I'm here standing in front of this, uh, the zone with the banana flavor, which I really detest. I want to get to the chocolate. Mm-hmm. So I don't care what he offers me. It's For me, it's not a bad deal because I want to get to the chocolate. And at the chocolate, you offer me a bad deal. So I'm not regretting anything I did at, with the banana because I'm not interested in banana. But you would still in relative terms just interpret the local event because you say, well, you decided not to wait there and relative to the delay I was giving you, it was a good deal and you still didn't take it and that the chocolate gave you a bad deal. But the rat is saying, look, I'm not interested in banana. I don't care about your deal. I want to just get the chocolate.
0: Well, but we don't see the rat behavior look like that. Mm-hmm. That is, the rats mm-hmm. actually take all four deals when they're good deals, Mm -hmm. right? It's not, their their thresholds, the differences are five seconds out of the Mm -hmm. 30. Um, The other thing is that the next offer after, let's say it's chocolate to banana to cherry to plain, Mm -hmm. after the banana, it's gonna, he's got two more offers before he's coming back to the chocolate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we know from these representations that when he's left the banana and he's done with that, he's thinking about the next one, which is the cherry not the one that he previously came. Mm-hmm. So normally it's going to be representing what's next in my sequence. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I don't think... The, the, the point is that only in these very specific conditions do you see this representation of the previous choice. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is important about this task is because there are four options, it's not just, well, I'm not thinking about... I don't want to be where I am now. It's actually thinking about a very specific case of that previous option. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, normally, the animal would be thinking about the next option. Right.
2: So uh, you've presented evidence that rats can uh, feel disappointment, maybe regret, that they can mentally time travel, potentially even quite far in the future, and imagine the rewards or punishments they might get. So uh, as a scientist, you must obviously think, well, what are the implications here for how we use animals in our research? Um,
0: yeah, well, I think that the key, I don't think it changes anything because I think the question still has to be how do we make sure that our animals are treated as well as possible? That we want to make sure that every experiment we do is fully justified, that we want to make sure that um, unless we're studying a stress condition, we don't want to be stressing their animals, our animals. I mean, I know. I know I think differently under stress, (laughs) so if I want to understand how normal behavior is happening, I want to understand how a non-stressed animal. So I I think it's always a question of, um, you know, really thinking about this question and always asking yourself: Is this experiment important? Is this actually something that has to happen? And I think that's a valid question, and I think that we every scientist I know asks that question as they're doing experiments.
2: I guess, though, that one thing that we might have done in the past is think, well, it's a rat. It's not going to worry about what's happening to it tomorrow. But, uh, you know, we now have this extra consideration, perhaps, that these animals are able to to think back on things that have happened in the past or maybe look forward to events in the future, and therefore we have to be more careful.
0: Yes, but to be honest, I think that intuitively we've always known this. You ask a pet owner that pet owner has always believed that their animals are emotional, intuitive, you know, connecting. And I think the whole animal experimental question has always included that. And I think it has to, um, I think that it's easy to say, well, you know, that, that, you know, yes, there's been a historical science, but, you know, we go back to, you know, the Harlow experiments, those horrible Harlow experiments, you know, he was arguing the importance of this from an emotional perspective, right? That this is this is critical. I mean, there's a wonderful data. Uh, Deborah Blum in her book Love at Goon Park talks extensively about this. I think it's one of the most the best books on on the whole animal issue. Uh, talks about how every infant who has survived the NICU unit, the neonatal intensive care unit, owes its life to Harry Harlow and those nightmare experiments. Because The NICU units changed, and the survival rate went from basically nothing to tremendous, to very successful, because people started actually, they started actually touching the infants, right? Before that, it was assumed that you couldn't touch an infant because it'd be a sterile problem, but then human infants need contact, right? So we changed. We changed the NICU units, and those NICU units changed because of Harry Harlow and those experiments that are incredibly hard to justify. So this is a very difficult and complex issue and is one that I think needs to be thought of in terms of the importance of this and how do we connect that up. And I, to be honest, I'm not sure that this data changes. It, it convinces scientists that you know the animals really do this. And I think it tells us a lot about how these processes work, which is to me the really important thing, that it We understand a lot more, I think, now about how these processes work, which means, of course, we can start to ask what happens when they go wrong, right? And in fact, a lot of human psychiatry, for example, is fundamentally dependent on breakdowns in computation, right? The way to really think about psychiatry, I think, is to think of it as failure modes of an engineering system. But we can't know what the failure mode is until we know what the engineering system is.
2: So where do you see the impact of this work in, in, for instance, treating human mental illness?
0: Well, I think that, for example, if we can identify the fundamental structures, that is, the fundamental computational components that are driving things like psychiatry, then we will actually be able to understand treatments better. We'll understand what the actual symptoms are. One of the things I like to say, we've been doing a lot of work on addiction, actually, in trying to understand how, what is human addiction. And I like to say addiction is a symptom, not a disease that there's actually lots of diseases, lots of dysfunctions in the decision-making and other systems that we can identify from first principles now that we know how these computations work. We know better how these computations work. And that then leads us into being able to start to say, well, okay, you know, that's not a cocaine addict. That's somebody who has an evaluation problem in the deliberation system. Now, of course, we have to figure out how do you fix an evaluation mm-hmm. problem in your deliberation mm-hmm. system. But at least we know what it is, right? And um, there, are many, there are cases, there's discussion happening. I mean, right now, this is exactly where the field is with this new term called computational psychiatry. I have to say I'm not fond of that term, but it is the term. And the idea is to take this new computational understanding of decision-making systems and really this engineering view of the brain, right? The brain as a, as an engine, as a system that's doing things, explicitly and has a, a physical process running a physical computation and identifying where the fa- failure modes, where the fault lines are, and then connecting that up. And there's a, so, there's a conversation happening. My hope is that this can change treatment and you know even definitions of what some of these dysfunctions are. And the, the short answer is it looks like the answer is yes, but you know I don't think that we're going to... We don't know it yet. I suspect we're five or 10 years mm-hmm. away
2: And one of the uh, hopes, I guess, for the more distant future is that one of the treatments we might be able to have is to replace damaged circuits with artificial circuits, what people call neuroprostheses. And people are talking about hippocampus as a potential target for neuroprosthetics. I mean, what do you think about that? Is that a realistic possibility?
0: Oh, I certainly think neuroprosthetics are a realistic possibility. Um... I think, actually, the first things that are going to come, though, are going to be better understandings of learning systems, and that as we understand how these systems learn and modify themselves, right? I mean, anytime you interact with somebody, you are changing the brain, right? The fact that somebody remembers anything means the brain has changed. So I think there's ways to do it that are less physically invasive, and I think those are going to happen first. Um... I think that you know we're going to see a lot, kind of small. Mo- I think the first things that are going to happen is small modifications of treatments. Where we say, oh, well, actually, you know, this treatment depends on working memory co- computations. So if we just added a working memory training component, that will change how this treatment works. I think that's going to be the first steps, because neuroprostheses require not only the understanding of the computational process but a second engineering piece of how do you actually interface with the brain, which is non-trivial. And lots of people are working on that. But I think there's a, a complicated second step that's gonna have to happen there.
1: Mm-hmm. So now, in the beginning, to, to, when you sort of had to, had to, in a nutshell, define what, what you're trying to achieve, you said that, that you're trying to decode the mind from brain states. Yes. Right. But if we now look at the data, and let's uh, let's say a bit more detached, cynical perspective. I can say, oh, great, but you've been decoding neuron states from from brain states. Where, where is the mind, right? Where wh- how do we get that link to 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 mind? And I see that you're trying to get there, also looking at the, these high level constructs like regret, for instance, right, or uh, agency, right. But this is also, if you want, creating a risk because now if people if you would not be able to really nail that because these constructs are just very complicated, you're left in this position that all you've been doing then is decoding neuron states from brain states. Right. right? So how, how do we really m- cross that bridge? How are we going to do that? How confident are you that we're actually close in reaching that goal? I'm actually pretty confident that we are reaching
0: that goal. You're absolutely right. There's there's danger in using these terms, particularly when we have about half of the term, which is, I think, what's happening in regret, for example. I, we don't have evidence that the animals feel the emotion of mm-hmm. regret. Um, we talked a little at the talk whether we could actually figure out how to do that. But for deliberation, I'm much more confident, actually, that we have the pieces of that. But I think the key here is that this new viewpoint and it really is to be honest new in the last 20 or 30 years that the way to understand the brain is as a computational device and not just in some sort of digital computation but in the mathematics of analog components that it's actually performing some sort of fundamental computational process and that's that what we call mind is in fact also a computational process Mm -hmm. and that doesn't diminish in my view the, the who you are mm-hmm. of a person. I'm very happy to be Commander no, Data. I'm sure, I have no
1: problems with that. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but if we have that computational process, then we should be able mm-hmm. to access it. And so to me, the key is that those, those processes make very specific predictions mm-hmm. about what the neuron state should look like. And but so we can it, go in and look mm-hmm. for those neuron states mm-hmm. checking those predictions. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I would not want to say that we just can go in and look Right. I think the key here is a full interaction of theory and experiment. We need yeah. a theoretical neuroscience.
1: That would be very good, yes. Yeah. I agree. But then what is interesting, though, is that now you, you, you do... Actually, you mentioned the word computation regular, a lot. Yes. So apparently you see that as a bridging level yes. of description. Are you having in mind a specific set of computational operations or do you use them in a loose way, like some form of transformation...
0: I mean in a loose way, okay, okay. in some form mm-hmm. of transformation. Okay. I do not mean specific. What right. I mean is that, that mathematics mm-hmm. and computation about information is the correct way to describe this process. Mm-hmm. And certainly we can also describe the process pharmacologically. We can describe it chemically. We can describe it physically. But I think that the way to understand what the brain is doing is this compute is, is, is through a transformation of information. And so the idea is to take in some sense a computer science view, which is that you have representations, you have algorithms. the algorithms are not necessarily digital algorithms. Mm-hmm. the representations are not necessarily digital representations. but that you have the question is what are the representations? how are those representations transformed from structure to structure? How are those representations you know encoded? Mm -hmm. And that that language, that mathematical language, is the bridge to connect Mm -hmm. kind of psychological states with neural states. Right.
1: So then before we get to the finish line, in some sense, you could also look at your description of the brain as making it actually fairly simple. Because we have these different modules, they perform certain operations, I have a memory in my hippocampus. I have valuation in my orbitofrontal cortex, vental striatum. I have some rule-based integration of prefrontal cortex. And as long as I just decode what these different subsystems do, I can just glue them together and I understand how the brain works.
0: I don't think the glue is so simple.
1: Okay, tell me. Is, yeah. that, is that where the secret lies?
0: No, I think, this, I think there's important questions in all these components, mm-hmm. both. I mean, to be honest, I, I want to be careful about saying you know, that we've solved the brain. We certainly haven't solved the brain. There's a lot of work to do, right? To say that you know, we've identified that there exist future representations in hippocampus doesn't tell us how those future representations are generated. We mm-hmm. talked about that, right. right? So there's a whole question of how does this computation happen? One of the things that's very exciting in terms of the gluing is there's some very exciting data coming on suggesting that there's dynamic gluing, Mm -hmm. that structures will talk to other structures by matching oscillations, and by sometimes they'll connect up and sometimes they won't. Uh, One of my favorite stories is the neuromodulator stories in the invertebrate literature, Mm -hmm. in which neuromodulators basically completely rewire the network. Mm -hmm. Cells that were oscillating suddenly are not oscillating. Cells that were inhibitory are now excitatory. It's almost like you have multiple networks. Mm -hmm. Hippocampus works the same way. In the presence of acetylcholine, the entorhinal cortex is driving most of the inputs. The recurrent inputs in CA3 are uh, weak, but but have stronger LTP. In the absence of acetylcholine, right hippocampus is doing more internal generation the entorhinal inputs are weaker the recurrent connections are stronger and hippocampus is driving more to the deep entorhinal outputs mm-hmm. right this is work among other people by mike hasselmo in mm-hmm. the 1990s and so well, you've got this where these computational states are really complicated right right so mm-hmm. i don't want to trivialize the mm-hmm. the module story mm-hmm. right but i still think it's a computation question right, right. So the advantage of the acetylcholine from the Mike Haslamo story is that it prevents interference during storage. Mm-hmm. It's fundamentally a computational explanation right. for this process.
1: Okay. So, so tell me, David, look, you're, you're really leading the pack in a lot of this work, I have to say, and this sort of system-level understanding of, of cognitive uh, properties of rats. So if we'd like to follow in, that, in your tradition, what would be the reddish law? of brain science that we should adhere to? Yikes. Um, that's a hard
0: one. Um, bring in everything. <laughs> uh, I think to me, the, the, the key is to be able to bring in theory, to bring in the computation, to bring in the experiments, to, to, to have all of it talk to each other mm-hmm. and to try to actually build this, this conjoint interaction. And mm-hmm. to say, you know, how does the, um, you know, how does this, ex- I mean, you really want a full loop is to me the key. Mm-hmm. You want the theory making a prediction that you then test with the experiment, that you connect up with the modeling, that, you know, then changes your theory. Mm-hmm. And you, this, this whole cycle and thinking of it as a system. Mm-hmm. Is
1: to me the key, though I'd hate to call it the reddish law. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. And then look, Tony here likes traveling, um, and I don't think he has been to Minnesota yet. So four years from now, I'm going to ship him to Minnesota. Uh, cool, low cost, uh, but he's going to get there one way or the other. Um, and he's gonna he's gonna have a piece of paper in his hand that said, "I came here to test the hypothesis." So what's the one hypothesis that you, or prediction that, that you want to make today that Tony will come and check out four years from now to see whether you really tested it and what kind of, uh, what kind of outcome you found? Specific prediction. Specific prediction. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'm not sure I could give one quickly like that but what i could tell you is what the key question is that mm-hmm. we'd like to be asking okay which is how do you actually integrate and decide when you have a conflict between decision systems mm-hmm. to me that's the that's the ignorance question mm-hmm. i really love the the Stuart firestein ignorance point you know that, that what science is about is questions mm-hmm. right and finding the question and to me a particularly questions that you you didn't know were questions before you started working, right? To me, that's the question that I didn't know was a question, Mm -hmm. right? Until I actually had the point, you know, until I, it wasn't me, until, you know, the field had gotten to the point where we had these multiple decision systems, asking how you interact between decision systems is a meaningless question. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the question I would love to know if if Tony comes and says, that's the question, Mm -hmm. have you answered it? Mm -hmm. I would be ecstatic <laughs> if, I, if I had an answer to that.
1: All right, great. David Reddish, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Sure. Are we out? Yeah. Oh, that was intense.
0: <laughs> that was fun. The CSN podcast yeah. was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.